Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For more than 50 years, the U.S. Army War College's Eisenhower Series College Program has been designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of dialogue, War College students in the program travel across the country, speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of social distancing, The ESCP has had to scale back some of its travels, although I'm happy to say that travel has picked up this spring. Here at A Better Peace, we also aim to help pick up the slack by giving Eisenhower program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights. Today's podcast is the first in a planned series of such here in the spring of 2022. Today's topic is Great Power Competition. Over the past few years, United States strategy has undergone a serious reconsideration. In both formal statements and general outlook, American leaders have moved away from a focus on terrorism and violent extremism toward a renewed interest in great power competition with near-peer competitors, especially China and Russia. Such a strategic rebalance requires careful rethinking by those strategic leaders who will work within this new environment. Our guests today, four members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2022 and members of the Eisenhower Series College Program, offer examples of that rethinking. Colonel Layla Green is a British Army officer with operational experience in Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. She has also deployed extensively to Sub-Saharan Africa in support of the Ministry of Defense and other UK government agencies. Colonel Green has experience in working with the U.S., NATO, and the U.N., Her area of interest for the Eisenhower College program has been alliances, specifically the role of U.S. leadership within European security and the special relationship with Great Britain. Colonel Jason Grote is an Australian Army officer who has enjoyed a variety of postings and has commanded at every level. He has deployed to Timor-Leste, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and has enjoyed numerous training opportunities in the United Kingdom, United States, Africa, and the Southwest Pacific. In addition to his bachelor's degree, Colonel Grote holds master's degrees from the University of New South Wales and Dakin University. Mr. Mike Rossman is a Foreign Service Officer with the United States Agency for International Development. He is an international development professional working for more than 15 years outside the United States, serving in Kenya, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, the Philippines, Mali, Haiti, and Georgia. His expertise is in program management and overseas contracting. Following graduation, his next assignment will be USAID's Pakistan mission. Our final guest today is Brigadier General Amit Talwar of the Indian Army, a former brigade commander uh, who comes to us from his service in the Indian Army headquarters. And we are delighted to have all of you with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. So to get us started, um, Eisenhower program students offer a brief speech. 
Um, what we're going to do here today is allow each of our four guests to offer a edited version of their usual speech. And I'm going to go in alphabetical order by last name. So I'm going to ask Colonel Layla Green to start. Layla, go right ahead. Well, thank you for letting me share my views on alliances and European security. I'm not going to focus on Ukraine, but I will signpost some context and themes that I think are relevant to alliances and the role of the US. But I think, first of all, why, why do nations seek alliances? And for our nations, they need alliances to preserve their power. Neither of our countries can create the world they want without harnessing the strength of the many. This is a strategic advantage and something that our rivals simply cannot match. US power is not sustained by military dominance alone, but by liberal transformational leadership providing global influence. Nations are attracted to partnerships where they can see common causes and values that meet their national interests. Now, it's fairly obvious why states might seek a military alliance with the US. It's the world's biggest economy and most powerful military. But what's in it for you? Partnerships are expensive and they demand US compromise but they do provide the US with power via proxy. Burden sharing with like-minded, largely democratic nations is central to US national security strategy as allies provide military capacity, but also legitimacy. Therefore, it's not simply a transaction, but a symbiotic relationship between the US needing partners and others needing the US. So what of European security? NATO formed to bind uh, European nations to prevent conflict and deter Russia. The military alliance has grown and has been complemented by the European Union, thus fusing Europeans in security, but also many of them under a single currency. Now, a series of small wars in the Balkans has disrupted that peace, but it hasn't been of an existential threat to us or indeed the system we preserve. So why now is there state-on-state -state conflict in Europe? the prospect of a proxy war between the US and Russia, or indeed a war that could include all European nations, both inside and outside of NATO. Russia's actions in the Ukraine have shattered European perception of security. Our world has most definitely changed, but the ramifications of war will spread as they already are to the global markets and the potential involvement of China, which is actively seeking to diminish US influence and therefore power anywhere it can. Thus, Ukraine might seem a long way from the US, and clearly geography still matters, but Ukraine is fighting our adversary and it is fighting for our values. Therefore, supporting its cause makes its lack of NATO membership less relevant. NATO has failed to deter Russia and it has been unable to go to the aid of a neighbour and partner because of the genuine risk of nuclear escalation. But does that render it void? Now, I would suggest far from it. NATO is a political military organisation that has provided the coherence, unity and apparatus for a US-European response. Without US leadership within NATO and the agreement of the 30 members, a coherent transatlantic reaction would not have been possible. The trust built through NATO has certainly afforded unified responses and action across economic, diplomatic, intelligence and information instruments of power at an unprecedented level and speed. They will denude Putin of power, isolate, bankrupt and potentially accelerate a leadership challenge. Therefore, although we don't see a direct military response from NATO, please don't be too hasty to disregard the power of the alliance that has been here since 1949. And I say with a high degree of confidence we'll be here long after Mr Putin. Great. 
Thank you. Thank you, Colonel Green. We'll come back to you for in our conversation. But now I'd like to turn to uh, Jason Grote. Yeah, thank you, Ron, and thanks for inviting us to the program. Um, my area of study has really been to complement what Layla's already spoke about is the grey zone and narrow that down into the Asia-Pacific region or the neighbourhood of which Australia op uh, operates and occupies um, uh, on the planet. So to me, the grey zone or that ambiguous space that pushes the boundaries of conflict but never exceeds it uh, in my part of the world in the Asia-Pacific is occupied by China. The term grey zone has gained uh, a level of notoriety in the mid-2000s, and it's certainly nothing new. We've heard of grey zone by other names, such as operations short of war, irregular warfare, proxy warfare, ambiguous operations, hybrid warfare, or even salami tactics, to name a few. At its most basic meaning, the grey zone describes that art of influence against an entity just below the threshold of war. And I feel that's what is happening in the Asia-Pacific as far as great power competition goes, particularly between states like the United States and China. Now, while conventional military force remains a very strong deterrence factor in the Asia-Pacific, what I'm concerned about is that our strategic competitors are exploiting the seams of our hard-won relationships within the region. Therefore, I think we need new complementary ways to confront these pressures, which are not just the hard power of a conventional military force. So life in the grey zone, it has its challenges, and I think we're witnessing the most significant power shift over the last 75 years within the Asia-Pacific. And liberal democracies such as Australia and the United States need to consider ways of how we're going to counter this challenge. Countries will seek to alter the status quo, um, and they'll ignore universally accepted global rules and norms to operate within their own national interest. Moreover, China uses grey zone tactics, and a few of those tactics are like intimidation, economic coercion, and false narratives to achieve their aims. And I think there's three ways which uh, a small to middle power like Australia in the Asia Pacific can actually augment conventional military deterrence. And the three ways are as follows. The first thing we can do is spotlight the benefits of smaller regional unilateral security arrangements within the region. We've had a number of large multilateral frameworks like the Quad between Japan, India, Australia and the United States. We've had another large uh, security pact like AUKUS between the United Kingdom, Australia and the United States. Now, these large frameworks overshadow some of our smaller neighbours within the region. The second one I think we can, we can augment that military deterrence is solidifying approach of partnering with military forces in the region instead of searching for proxies. So what I mean by that is working by, with and through our partners in the region on a, on a neutral footing and making sure that we don't use and abuse those hard-won relationships that we've garnered over the last 75 years. And the third thing I think we can look at is rediscovering the lost art of soft power. And a few areas we can do that from a military perspective is through sport, for argument's sake, um, the Commonwealth of Nations framework, of which there are 53 countries in the Commonwealth of Nations globally, and 11 of those are in the, in the Pacific. And that's about the understanding of shared interests through which to cooperate. And we could also cooperate through those interests on things like climate change, uh, Ill illegal, unregulated and unrestricted fishing. So there are a couple of ways, Ron, which I think uh, a small to middle power like Australia can have a, a, a larger impact on the grey zone tactics within our region. Great. Thank you, Jason. Uh, this, uh, this will feed very nicely into Mike Rossman. Go right ahead, Mike. Thank you, Ron. Uh, and thank you for allowing me to be part of your podcast. The thesis of my Eisenhower speech is that soft power influence contributes to national security. 
and that we need to coordinate it better through the establishment of a soft power strategy development and coordinating body within the United States government. Let me explain. Uh, until recently, I worked in the country of Georgia. Georgia is a small country in the Caucasus just to the south of Russia. When I lived there, I, I thought it strange that when on the way to the airport, I would drive on George W. Bush Street. Why, I thought, in this country so far from the United States is President Bush memorialized? And the answer is found in 2005, when President Bush visited Georgia. And in honor of his visit and out of appreciation, the Georgians dedicated a street to him. Thinking about this led me down a chain of thought and to an understanding that the Georgian appreciation was found in power. And not hard in your face power, but rather soft power. I realized that soft power is a U.S. competitive advantage and should always be the foundation of our engagement with other nations. Now, Georgia, as a post-Soviet state, chose democracy as its guiding value. And that is dangerous when Russia is your northern neighbor. In fact, today they're suffering through a frozen conflict with Russia controlling 20% of their territory. What Russia is doing in Georgia and Ukraine, we could add, is important because we live in a period of great power competition. China, Russia, and the United States are in a long-term strategic struggle to determine the future rules and norms for international behavior. Now, the U.S. government devotes tremendous informational, financial, and human resources as part of soft power projection and influence. For example, the Department of State provides soft power support to overseas American corners, which are town-hall-style town hall meeting places. The Department of Defense provides life-sustaining uh, humanitarian assistance to mitigate overseas disasters. And USAID, my organization, provides sustainable development assistance through vaccine diplomacy and health education and democratic institution building. As a government, the U.S. is doing a lot in the soft power arena. But I ask, are we maximizing our efforts? With the best of intentions, my observation is that many instruments of U.S. soft power operate independently and not in a mutually supporting way. Therefore, I would submit our greatest strength, our universal values, is not attracting or influencing as much as it can. And I would like to correct that. I end my speech by asking listeners to consider the United States establishing a coordinating body for soft power so that foreign nations will be more supportive of our national security goals. I note that this coordination does not require a new organization be created. It can be implemented by the Department of State or USAID or others. What I ask is, and what I know is what's important, is that we know that the need is there and that great power competition requires immediate action to strengthen our soft power influence and national security. Thank you again for the opportunity to speak. I look forward to a lively discussion. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate that. Very good. And now, uh, Amit, for being so uh, patient to wait to be the uh, last but not least. Please go ahead. Hey, good afternoon, Ron. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be in the war room. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about is the Indo-Pacific a trap? And this is in light of the recently published uh, Indo-Pacific strategy of 2022. So the, the Indo-Pacific story actually starts in 2007 when the former Japanese Prime Minister, Mr. Abe, describes the potential for seamless trade ties across the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And the Asia-Pacific terminology, which is prevalent at that time, you know, is kind of enlarged to include the Indian Ocean. But it catches academic fancy within the strategic community only when 
the United States releases the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, and then you know follows it up by renaming the Pacific Command as Indo-PACOM in 2018. So if you were to take a flight from San Diego, which is the West Coast, and you know start flying over the Pacific, you would cross Japan, Korea, the entire ASEAN nations, and land at, land at Kuala Lumpur. And that's a 17-hour flight, maybe. And that is just the Pacific Ocean. You need another flight to from Kuala Lumpur all the way across India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, across you know the Middle East up to Djibouti, which is a 15-hour flight to complete the Indian, Indian Ocean. And that is the Indo-Pacific. So it's a vast area, right? Now, why join these two oceans to form an imaginary kind of a construct? Well, my research shows that the underlying driver was, is, and I hope will remain, trade and economics. Now, this region accounts for 60% of the world's you know, gross domestic product, contributes to more than two-thirds of the global economic growth of the globe, and has 60% of global seaborne trade that passes through this region. Therefore, it has immense strategic value. So the logic of formulating the Indo-Pacific strategy, I guess, was to offset the Chinese influence in Eurasia and Africa because of the Belt and Road Initiative and reinforce actually a rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific to counterbalance Chinese growing power and their maritime power. Now, while the Belt and Road Initiative sought to kind of build Chinese infrastructure for access to the sea, it is the quadrilateral security dialogue or quad, as Jason spoke about earlier, you know, it's like-minded nations, India, Japan, USA, Australia, which are strengthening something like the maritime security, which is a key pillar of the quad. And therefore, some kind of a balance of power is trying to be restored in the Indo-Pacific. Now, every nation in the Indo-Pacific run actually trades with China for access to low-priced goods. China also has the largest military, economic, and diplomatic influence in the region and uses coercion to intimidate their neighbors, advance unlawful maritime claims, and this increases the risk of conflict. So you see that trade and security are actually the two contradictory drivers of relations in the Indo-Pacific. Now, economically, the region itself, that, that is the Indo-Pacific, is very well integrated. 53% of the trade that happens within the region and about $20 trillion worth of that, right? So trade induces actually huge interdependence between all nations that are operating in the Indo-Pacific and promises cooperation, while the militarization of this great power competition that I spoke about actually to counter the rise of China makes this a trap for the resident nations. So this tension finally manifests itself in flashpoints like Taiwan, North Korea, or maybe even the Himalayan borders. And therefore, to end it all, you know, I think the region, because of the vastness, has a lot of sub-regions. And balance of power or change in balance of power in one has now started affecting the other. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amit. And, and thank you, everyone, for your presentations. I, it's, it's always interesting to hear what the uh, Eisenhower speeches are like. I've, I have been a, 
uh, what's the proper word, an escort for a group of Eisenhower students back in the, in the before time. Um, and so it's fun to be in a room while you give your speeches. It's also, you know, since part of the idea of the Eisenhower program is to show the, let's say the diversity, the variety of people who study at the war college. I think it's, it's especially interesting. I didn't, uh, I believe I knew, I knew who I was meeting today, but it only occurred to me as I was listening to all of you that this is the first time I've had a group of Eisenhower students where the majority were actually international fellows. Um, at the War College, which I think is always a bit of a surprise to non-War College audiences, right, that we bring in uh, so many allies and partners. And of course, that is a theme that I see in your four presentations, right, as we talk about great power competition. But for the United States, uh, one of the advantages that the United States enjoys so far vis-a-vis uh, -vis rivals uh, or uh, competitors such as China or Russia is that the United States has a very robust network of uh, allies and partners. Uh, something, you know, Americans sometimes see this as an annoyance, uh, I would say wrongly, but it is, it's actually a strength. But one of the things that all of you have spoken of here is the idea about how those relationships can be, can be built, can be leveraged. And so I have a question for the entire group, and I want to, I'll sort of go in reverse order here because I want to start with you, uh, Amit, is the, the, what is it like uh, when we talk about the idea of partnering with the United States or participating in uh, various multilateral relationships with the United States in a way that both serves the interests of all the partners um, and emphasizes the value of the connection with the United States. I mean, this, especially when we talk about India, which is you know, far from a small state <laughs> and um, a, a large state with important ge with regional interests. Um, in what ways do multilateral relationships and connections with the United States help to leverage Indian national interest and Indian uh, influence within this vast region? That's, uh, that's a great question, Ron. And so allow me to, you know, pivot back to my topic, which is the Indian, uh, the, the Indo-Pacific. And if you, if you look at the events of maybe the past 10 years, there are two things that strike us when you look at Indo-US relations. One, I think the trajectory has been so steep that maybe 10 years back, none of us would have really predicted that the that India and the United States would actually come so close to each other as far as uh, being strategic partners are concerned. Right. This, the second part, which is more important in this, is the, I think, the defense ties, the mill-to-mill -mill kind of relations which have transcended uh, really uh, really fast over the last maybe 10 years. And we have multilateral exchanges, we have cooperation, we have exercises. And I think uh, there is realization that when it comes to countering the rise of China, no nation can do that alone. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that is where I think partnerships over a period of time are being built up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The fact that there is always this... Uh, kind of a thought that I got even in my seminar to say, hey, are we your best friends? And that, that I think, needs to be understood in the background of uh, where India comes from and the historical, you know, mm -hmm. background mm -hmm. of how our relationships developed over a prime. So friends are always welcome. Friends are never counted as one, two, three, four. And that, I think, is how I would look at the multilateral kind. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? Because because real friendship requires mutual respect and re and, sure. and friends, friends can disagree with each other and remain sure. friends. That's how you know you're friends. 
so I'm just, uh, I mean, I, I think about that a lot, and especially the issue of democracies are chaotic in within themselves and relationships between democracies um, add extra layers of chaos, which gets me, Mike, I want to go to you, the idea about you know, so much of American influence, right? The, the, the talk about soft power. One of the one of the interesting things when I consider so as a histor as a historian of post war Europe and the Cold War, that American soft power was almost something that was done uh, without planning it. In fact, in some in some cases, anti planning. Right, you know, nobody in the army wanted those European kids to be listening to that terrible rock and roll music that the American soldiers were bringing over, and yet that turns out to be this crucial element of soft power, which raises this complex issue of. Is soft power something that you can program, something that you can organize? Or are you supposed to just sort of plant the seeds and walk away and hope that they grow? Um, and so this is so what is the relationship between between policy and soft power? That's a great question, Ron. Uh, I think back when you say that during uh, how do you program soft power to the U.S. Information Agency? Yeah. Uh, back in the Cold War days, which uh, I think all can agree did uh, fabulous work spreading uh, American values through culture, cultural exchanges. A jazz musician goes to <clears throat> Russia, a tremendous stuff. Uh, actually, I still bring jazz records to a friend in Azerbaijan for her father, who oh, used man. to listen uh, just from that. It's still there. There's still remnants of it. I like it. Uh, as you know, USIA, uh, the Cold War ended, USIA was uh, ended. We're now in a new period of time. Uh, I, I believe that soft power is an instrument of national of national power mm -hmm. and like all instruments of national power we learn at the war college of dime diplomacy information military economic it's it's an information area and we can program that uh i'm not talking uh that uh we we create propaganda mm -hmm. but there's so many things that we do just through our values just through our partnership as we're discussing here we help each other Humanitarian assistance. There's a, a hurricane. The U.S. military, USAID, we act. Uh, there is a lot of uh, U.S. NGOs who are just doing tremendous work, just values of, uh, I have a little bit, I don't, I, I can share a little bit with others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that given the great power competition right now, we, if we better coordinate, we can get better impacts. Mm -hmm. And really what we're doing here is you're saying uh, people to people. Right. Uh, can we convince people that, uh, that this valuing human rights, individual rights, democratic viewpoint uh, is, is a better way to go than an autocratic one. And I just think we can think it, uh, we can program it, uh, we don't have to propagandize it, uh, but it can lead to changing minds and over time, perhaps uh, changing of governments in a sense of government attitudes. Uh, right. What's the difference between Ukraine and Russia? I just wanted to say this, USAID has been in Ukraine for 30 plus years. Uh, the Ukrainians are Euro-Atlantic uh, facing uh, the Russian government threw USAID out uh, because they wanted to squash their civil society organizations in the 90s. Right. There's a difference there. Soft power can do things. Right. I mean, I guess that's something to keep in mind, right, is that if uh, if you wonder whether soft power has an influence, you should you see the way autocrats react to soft power. Uh, it must it must matter quite a great deal if they're so scared of it. Proof of the pudding. Proof of exactly. the pudding. Thanks, Mike. Well, and so Jason, then I turn to you and the idea about gray zone activities, right? Soft power, you brought it up as well, is how should we understand competition and especially competition that can be managed within partnerships um, when you know we're hoping to keep things below that level of armed conflict? 
Yeah, thanks, Ron. That, you're exactly right. How do we compete with someone like China in the Asia-Pacific? Well, I think we've got to, from a US perspective as, as well, we have to be in it to win it. You've mm-hmm. got to be in the region, whether it's economically, diplomatically, militarily. Um, you need to be there. So there's things like the CPTPP, for example, um, trade organisations. They need to be um, observers of ASEAN. We need to have those multilateral effects in the region from a US perspective so that we can show China, a better way to do business, a better way to behave on that world stage. I think that's very, very important. When it comes to allies and partners, um, we have to take that approach where we need more friends and less enemies from the Australian perspective. And the Australian-US partnership has been around as far as ANSYS is concerned uh, for for decades. It was only in 2001 when uh, our Prime Minister, uh, John Howard at the time, was in Washington with those horrible attacks uh, as uh, on 9/11, that he enacted the ANSYS the ANSYS Treaty on that particular day, and I think those relationships run deep. There's a lot of history in the Asia Pacific, and trying to understand how we can comp- how we compete across the dime and across the dime fill in that region is very very important. But we also need to be understand how to cooperate with mm-hmm. great powers in the region. And China being the, the, the biggest panda in the room, so to speak, we need to understand how do we cooperate with China? Is it economically? Is it against illegal fishing? Is it uh, with the territorial waters, for argument's sake? Or is it on climate change? I think we need to be able to stretch that competition continuum right out. And it's not a binary black, white, either or. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess because the idea is if you can model uh, effective cooperation as something that works among existing partnerships. The goal ultimately is to make other people think that it would be nice to be part of those partnerships too, right? Not to that you don't want Absolutely, them, you know. absolutely. It's a, it's a, you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, if China wants to be part of a lot of these multilateral um, uh, organizations within the Asia Pacific, then they need to have demonstrable values uh, that, uh, that drive us towards that. And the US is a, is a global leader and it is a regional leader that needs to step up and be part of that solution. Right. That's great. Well, and, and of course, this take, this turns me to you, Leela, and going back to, to uh, Amit's comment about the United States and India you know, being relatively new friends. Um, let's talk about the oldest friends that the United States has. Although, well, we don't have nobody. Nobody's here from France to talk about uh, the, the United States' oldest ally. But let's say let's talk about that special relationship, and especially in what ways does the U.S. U.K. relationship offer um, model or encouragement to sort of bigger visions of uh, multilateral cooperation and cooperation across the wide spectrum from trade to security and beyond. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. I think. What's really important to understand about the special relationship isn't um, just to connect with our kind of history and common language, but it's to pinpoint uh, and acknowledge, actually, that uh, the US clearly has lots of very important um, strategic relationships. So it's not unique in the sense that both nations don't have important relationships elsewhere, but it does have unique characteristics, Um, not just its longevity, but the depth of the relationship, particularly in intelligence sharing relationship that really was at the sort of zenith at the end of World War II. Military um, sort of compatibility and interoperability, there are no two allies that are more interoperable than than we are. And in terms of the sort of models of state, specifically um, economic sort of structures, uh, 
free free market economies and the sort of way that the New York Stock Exchange and London Stock Exchange are sort of complement each other almost in one financial system. So there are functions of state that are so closely aligned that really pull these two nations together. But I think after World War Two, what was really clear and what's been particularly consistent is that we have uh, identified the same national interests. Mm. So when the relationship runs through turbulent times, which it has done over the decades, what we see is two states that are absolutely committed to the security of their countries, sovereignty, prosperity, and of course, democracy. So this is what really binds them. And it gives the relationship a kind of primus inter pares uh, within foreign policy. So Britain absolutely accepts that the United States is the the bigger partner, is the wealthier partner, it has the world's greatest military, but it accepts its position as a junior partner within that relationship. Mm -hmm. And it also accepts its responsibilities uh, to other multilateral um, relationships such as NATO, but being the continental lead for NATO, whereas the US is clearly the most dominant partner in that organisation. You know, there, there are so many different angles for what we've discussed today uh, where we are running up on the end of, of time. But I, something occurred to me once again, looking at all of you, uh, uh, thinking of you all here, I already mentioned, right, three of you are, are international fellows. But even with you, Mike, is that uh, uh, basically we're here at the U.S. Army War College and yet nobody in this conversation right now is a United States Army officer. Um, and I am, uh, you know, so I, I guess I'm the only person who draws a paycheck from the United States Army uh, in this room. But the, um, but the, I, I do want to ask a question sort of to take us to the end to bring some of these themes together is for each of you, what has your experience been like as a student at the United States Army War College? Um, as you know, with the perspective that you brought, um, you know, what's it felt like? What, what, uh, what, what do you feel that you've brought and what do you feel like you will take away? I'm going to scramble the group here and say, Jason, I'm going to ask you this question first. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Ron. Uh, up front, I've had a brilliant time. Yeah. It's been a fantastic opportunity. Got some very, very close U.S. friends and some international fellows uh, across the entire course. Um, the biggest thing for me is that with the Australian-U.S., uh, alliance and the partnership. We've all walked, worked on operations together. Mm-hmm. Is the thing about the friendships is that you keep running into the same people your entire career. Whether you serve with them in Iraq and Afghanistan, or a variety of areas, you've served with them on courses that the US are run on exercises. Is that sort of continuity of relationship that you keep building as you go through your career? And to me, that's been fantastic. Of uh, rekindled old friendships um, across the United States military apparatus as well as with the international fellows contingent. Outstanding. Thank you, Jason. Amit, let me ask you this uh, as a as an, off, an Indian officer here in Carlisle, PA. Yeah, so pretty much like Jason, I'd followed Suez to say, you know, it, it has been a splendid opportunity. I could, uh, I think if I was to look at my years of service, I think this year was, I think, the most fantastic simply because of the professional and personal reasons. Professionally, I guess, uh, you know, I was I was able to understand the the entire system of the United States, and it some things used to always puzzle me when you look at it across so many oceans. Mm-hmm. And I truly understand why the United States is where it is today. And if I was to deal with, let's say, my friends in the U.S., how would I deal with them? And I hope I have been able to be a good ambassador for India too, and pretty much give back part of that to whoever I interacted with. And secondly, a person, I think Carlisle is. Uh, Pennsylvania is beautiful, right? Yeah. Uh, so I've had the privilege of seeing snow and cold, 
And I think it's been a fantastic time. And thank you so much. You bet. You bet. And Ed, although I, my wife, who's originally from the American South, from the other Georgia, Mike, right? The one on this side of the Atlantic. Um, <laughs> let's just say after 20 something years living in Pennsylvania and more than that, she doesn't take quite the same approach to snow that you do. I mean, but uh, but the first couple of times, it's awesome, right? After a while. But that's yeah. but that's good to know. Um, I want to go to Layla. Go ahead. Uh, your experience uh, being here at the War College. Yeah, I mean, like the two gentlemen before me, you know, it's an absolute privilege to be invited to someone else's country, uh, to live in their country for a year with your family, uh, with a in, a in a small town like Carlisle, but also to enter a, a pre- professional program like this. And indeed, the Eisenhower program has been the, the cherry on the top because what it's allowed us to do is get out and see some of the various audiences, which are quite that they differ. And therefore, to get feedback from a wide variety um, of American audiences has been really useful for me because I'm staying with the U.S. Army for two years in the Pentagon. So this has been a great warm up, beat up year for me. Um, but I think what I make sort of key takeaways is now understanding a little bit more about why America does things the way America does things, because the syllabus has been so broad to look at mm-hmm. you know various strategies across government. So it's added a little bit of context to why the military performs the way it does, why it's equipped the way it does, but also the decision making process in US government. So that's been incredibly helpful. I'm sure will assist me in my next job. Um, in terms of what I think I bring, um, being quite antagonistic, I think, with my American <laughs> in the classroom. But um, I think it's, yeah, just bringing a different set of perspectives um, from a country that does still have something of a global footprint and sits on the fringes of Europe, but also has this fantastic partnership with the United States. So I really hope that's added something to the learning of my uh, colleagues. Indeed. And I guess full disclosure, right, Layla was a participant in my seminar here at the War College. So I've seen up close the special relationship in action, I guess, and the and the antagonism too. But no, that's we'll we'll talk about that another time. But Mike, so you, the American who probably has before you came here, um, you know, how many years were you away before you came back for this year back to the War College? Well, actually, I was in Washington for two years, but I was almost sixteen years overseas before. Right. That. Okay. And and what's it been like at the as as the USAID student at the War College? Well, I'll, I'll view this as uh, looking back. It's been a cross-cultural experience mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I was trying to digest it. It's kind of like learning a language, learning a culture. Uh, I joined and uh, I started learning about uh, Army culture, DOD culture, and then actually international fellows taught me about cultures. We have four in my seminar, just the cultures also of their militaries uh, and how they think. So I view this as an excellent cross-cultural experience. And what it will do moving forward for me is just allow USAID uh, as, a, as a smaller instrument of uh, U.S. power than the military to better interact and have better outcomes, right. uh, which is what we all want. Which is what we all want. That's great. And, and, and yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, so you're, you're, just, you're going off to Pakistan next. Is that that's what you said at the beginning? right? Okay. That's correct. Oh, okay. And what I bring to this experience, I guess, is the civilian uh, perspective. One of my classmates uh, Gave me a high honor the other day. He said, Mike, we like you because you can see the other perspective. Sometimes we Army guys were a little slower with that. I thought I took that as a compliment that uh, I've been uh, appropriately trained by USAID <laughs> uh, because uh, we learn about strategic empathy. You have to learn about the other and how they view things. The framing is important. And the War College uh, helped me uh, to expand my framework and I think also allowed me to share with others how to put your feet in someone else's shoes. 
I think that's great. And really, in a way, right, that's that's what we hope by bringing together this community at the War College. It's also what we hope to do with the Eisenhower program. It's what we hope to do here at A Better Peace, to give people a window into what we do here at the War College. I am sorry to say that we have used up our time, but uh, this conversation just barely scratched the surface, but it was great. Thank you, Amit Talwar, Leila Green, Jason Grote, and Michael Rossman for joining us today uh, on A Better Peace. And good luck. Uh, I'll see you all at graduation. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Ron. That means we'll make it. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Unfortunately, I, I, I do not have the authority to uh, to make that formal. But oh well. Let's just say I'm pulling for all of it. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> you bet. Mike. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs, and send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. You know you want to. And after you have subscribed, please read, uh, please rate and review this podcast so that other people can find out about us, so that other people can join this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you next time. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.